Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We're looking at verses 2 through 6. 2 through 6 this morning. We paused last time to contemplate the silence in heaven that interrupted the worship of God. What could be so awesome that it would interrupt God's worshipers, that they would no longer sing praises to his name? Could their silence come from watching the Son of God open the seventh seal, the last seal, grasping the weight of the moment that the one opening the seal is the living word himself through whom this world and all creation was made, was created. As sin entered into the world through man's rebellion and death through sin, they see the one opening the seventh seal as the living word of God who took on flesh to be the sacrificial lamb who redeems us from the power of sin and death through his sacrificial blood shed for us on the cross. Could this silence come from beholding that the lamb who was slain rose in triumph over sin and the grave and the evil one and now reigns over all of heaven and the earth at the right hand of God the Father and he's listening to the prayers of his people? And is this one, the risen Christ Jesus, preparing now to vanquish all evil and restore the world he made to its glorious perfection? Yes, and a thousand times again, yes. This is why there is silence in heaven. Second Peter chapter 3 reveals that God's will is to sanctify this earth through fire, to sanctify it, to purify it, to make it holy through fire, even as one removes dross from silver or gold through great heat. That's one way to look at it. But on another scale, it's making something brand new out of that which was broken. Not only restoring it, but improving it, making it better than what it was before, setting it apart for that purpose and making it holy. It is how the Holy Spirit works in our souls. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, that we as Christians rejoice even in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. For the child of God, it is not God's wrath that is poured out upon you. It is, love, it is his love that is poured into you through the grace of his son Jesus Christ so that you might know him fully and be fully known by him. So even you and I, and our brothers and sisters throughout the world need to look to the love of God and his mighty counsel through prayer and his word, that we might not shrink back in times of trouble, but go forward in his grace and power. 
Let's look to God's word now. Revelation 8, verses 2 through 6. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer, it's like a golden pan, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct us through this wisdom, through this counsel. Speak through me as your servant, Lord, to your people this morning. Bless their hearts and minds with the life that comes only through your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to do something a little different this morning. This is a little bit of participation between you and I. I'm going to give you a quote, a a pronouncement, and it's tied to a school. If you know it, I want you to shout out what you think that school is that made this pronouncement. Are you ready? Here we go. Here's the quote. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Who wrote that? There's not only silence in heaven, there's silence in Bethel. Not a clue. Didn't come from Oski Christian. Although it might not be a bad statement for them to make. Okay, it does. So it's an early, but it is a university. What? I can't hear you. You guys speak louder. Harvard? You guys read my sermon. (laughs) You are correct. That came from Harvard University in 1642, their rules and precepts. And I can guarantee you that prayer was not only allowed in school at that time, it was commended and encouraged. Well, you say that predates the Constitution, Pastor, if it's 1642 and even the American Revolution whose victory we will celebrate tomorrow on the 4th of July. Well, let me give you something else that predates all this stuff. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1 and look with me at verses 1 through 5. Psalm 1, 1 through 5. This also predates a little bit the American Revolution. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, 
or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law or instruction of the Lord, and on his law or instruction he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Is this not what the faculty at Harvard University were commending to their students? The theme of Psalm 1 is God's judgment and his law, his instruction. The way to avoid God's judgment is to obey his instruction, his counsel, his law. The expert in the law comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Well, what does the law say? What does God command? How do you read it? And he summarizes it well. Behind the law, what what really serves as the foundation of the law is the command to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basis. That's the foundation for every, of the in, every one of the individual laws in the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And Jesus said, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. In other words, if you do this, if you obey God's law perfectly, you will live. You will have life. You will not be condemned. You will not be judged by God. You will have right relationship with God. You will know his blessing and provision. But he knew his heart that he was a sinful man. And although he thought he loved God well enough, he said, well, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus instructed him on who his neighbor is and how he should treat him. You notice here in Psalm 1 that this is a pronouncement of blessing on one and a pronouncement of condemnation or judgment on several others. It's one against many here to show a certain perspective. The blessed one, singular, is contrasted to the wicked who are plural, sinners who are plural, and mockers who are plural. The contrast draws uh, our attention to the understanding that the way of the righteous is the narrow road that is less traveled. This path or way is not an easy or popular choice to make. When you travel the righteous path, you must struggle against the traffic going in the opposite direction. Uh, Even buffeting against the currents of peer pressure and the coercive efforts of groupthink. Yet in spite of this, this path that heeds God's instruction is always going to be the best path for happiness. This is the counsel that Jesus gives a rich young ruler in Matthew 10, verse 21. He says, he asks the ruler, have you kept the commandments? And he goes to the latter table of the law, which is do not steal, do not kill, do not murder, do not commit adultery, and so forth. All these I've kept from my youth. Well, one one thing that you lack, he's going in the different direction from from the expert in the law before who thinks that he has a right relationship with God. This one thinks, this expert, or this, this 
a young Pharisee, thinks that he has a right relationship with man. And so he asks, what, what do I lack? And Jesus says, one thing, put God first in your life. Well, how? Well, sell everything you own and give to the poor. Take that which is temporal and not lasting and invest it into that which is eternal and lasting. Use it for the glory of God in building his kingdom here in this world. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. What is Jesus asking him? Will you heed my counsel? Will you obey my commands? Will you follow me? What happened to that young man? He went away sad because he had great wealth in this world. He had much property. There's sometimes the struggle that we face, wanting to hold on to what we have in this world instead of using it for the glory of God. Focusing on that which is temporal instead of focusing on that which is eternal, offering it to God. We need to take measure here and consider what Jesus is saying to us today. We live in a world that loves to fantasize about what is real and what is not real. It does so instructing us through the means of art, theater, and other forms of entertainment, even in, uh, even in higher education. The problem is, is there are some things that are just real. They just are what they are. Death is one of them. You can't escape it. You can't evade it. You look in the paper, you see an obituary. What's in the obituary? People who have died. You look on the news, what do they do? They present people who have died. You go on the internet, same thing. Death is real. It happens. We cannot avoid it. No matter how much we want to present some kind of fantasy or, or utopic world in our own thinking. The other thing that is real is God's wrath in judgment. One thing that uh, the evidence that we have throughout our, our globe is that there is evidence of a global flood. You have catastrophic rock layers that have been set in place and they are uniform throughout the globe. That is evidence of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth in this world during that time. But whether it is one person who dies or all the people on the planet who die, Physical death is momentary. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 20, verse 27 says, It is appointed to man once to die, and then what? The judgment. Then comes the judgment. Physical death is temporary. The judgment that follows is continuous. And by continuous, I mean eternal. The judgment that is unfolding here in Revelation 8 is the beginning of the end of this world and the people on it as we know it. In verse 2, you have seven angels before the throne of God and they are given seven trumpets. When the trumpet blasts, it signals the beginning of a specific activity always had through the whole Old Testament. Whether it's a call to war or a call to sacrifice, it was, it was, God, it was, it was a call to honor God in some way or form it was an active call and so these seven angels are getting ready to blast their horns uh, one by one in succession but before they do 
Before they do, you see an angel in verses 2 through 6 with a golden censer offering the prayers of the saints unto God. And we have this moment, and the question is, well, what's going on here? Commentator G.K. Beale writes, when incense is added to the hot coals, a cloud of fragrant smoke rises from the altar as a symbol of divine acceptance. Paul writes to the Ephesians that Christ loved them and gave himself for them as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The scene in heaven suggests that there is something sacrificial about genuine prayer. The focus here is on the aroma that is offered to God. When I'm out back, and I probably will be tomorrow cooking some steaks on the grill, the smell of the smoke that comes off those steaks, if they're cooked right, <laughs> is a pleasing aroma to me. I know, what it, I know where it comes from, I know what it means, and so forth. And, and as I sense it, it's, it's just pleasant to be around the grill as you, as you smell that meat cooking over a fire or over coals. What you see here is something that is pleasant to God. When we talk about Jesus' blood shed for us, blood is not a pleasant aroma in any way, stretch, or form. But when you look at God, the shedding of Christ's blood, his righteous blood for, our, for the stench of our sin, covers our sin in the presence of God and takes that which stunk before and makes it pleasing to God. The prayers that we offer up to God then through Christ Jesus are pleasant to God. They are a pleasing aroma to him because he knows that they come from hearts that are devoted to him, hearts that have been purchased by his pardoning blood, hearts that are filled with his love, the love of his spirit, devoted to him, and he receives it freely and gladly, and he responds as well. So here both the believer and his prayer in a, in a spiritual sense, enter into the presence of God by way of the altar. Now, there are some who think that these prayers are simply precatory prayers that are offered by God's people. Uh, that uh, one uh, commentator said that they were answered by God and returned to the earth only in the form of his wrath. But when I read through the scriptures... I don't see God's saints, God's people praying that way. There may be a sprinkling of it, but that's all about God's righteousness, not wanting vengeance. I see in in the Old Testament especially prayers for sanctification. Prayers that God would sanctify not only them, but all the earth. One example is Jonah. And you say, well, Pastor, Jonah wanted God to judge the Ninevites. The Ninevites were an evil people. They were wicked. They were despised by everyone around them. They were hateful. They did horrible things to Israel. And Jonah wanted God to judge them. But did Jonah want God to judge him then for his sin, for his wicked ways? Or did he want God to sanctify him? That's the whole point of Jonah. Would you rather receive God's judgment or God's grace? Would you rather God sanctify you even though you have to go through miserable times as his child, 
even though you have to go through times of suffering, would you rather have him sanctify you or, or live a, an easy life in this world and then stand before him in judgment to be condemned to eternal damnation? What would you rather have, Jonah? Well, Jonah changes his tune, but he was sanctified even as the people of Nineveh were. You know, to be sanctified is, is to be made holy, as I think I said before. It's to be renewed. It's to be purified. It's to be made into what God wants or intended you to be. And so what we see here in Jonah 3 verse 8 is the king calling on the whole city to fast and repent and turn to God that he might have mercy on him. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish under the weight of his judgment. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is the work of sanctification, not just simply the work of judgment. To be sanctified again is to be used for the purpose that God intends. Jonah ran away from God. God sanctified him through a storm, through a fish. Can you imagine being in the belly of a fish, having your skin bleached basically on its surface, having all your nerves exposed in the hot sun and wind, being so sensitive that the slightest breeze sets you off. And you still have to go after all that into a city that you despise and proclaim God's, God's judgment upon them. You know, what Jonah said was, was not a wonderful thing. He said, 40 days and, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And you think, well, that doesn't sound like good news. Well, it is if God was going to destroy you initially. This means that you have time to repent and turn to the Lord. And as they did repent and turn to the Lord, how did God respond? With compassion. He showed them grace. In Isaiah 6, verse 5, the prophet Isaiah cries out as he enters into the Holy of Holies and God's presence fills the area. He cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I've seen the Holy One with my physical eyes, and I know that that means judgment upon me. And so he says, Woe am I, for I am undone. He knows that the only right action of God is to judge him right there and right now. But he pleads for mercy. And as he does, what takes place? One of the seraphs, one of God's angels who are in his presence, goes to the censer and takes from it a hot coal or a live coal. That means one that's red hot. And he takes it in his hand and he places it on Isaiah's lips. And the heat, the fire, purges his lips symbolically showing that what is in his heart has been cleansed ceremonially, symbolically, by the power and, and sanctifying power of God himself. 
That's the only way that he can stand in the presence of a holy God is to be made holy like him. Go back then to Revelation 8, verse 5. What do you see taking place? After the angel offers these prayers of the saints, he takes fire from the altar, those hot coals filling up his censer, which is a golden pan with them. And and then the angel hurls the fire onto the earth. This fire will bring judgment upon the wicked for sure. But that's not its only intent. It will also sanctify God's people who are being redeemed, some who don't even know they are God's people yet, like those in the days of Jonah at Nineveh. We see here that God answers the prayers of his people, people, which is revealed by the Apostle John in peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and the trembling of the foundations which come from God's throne. This is why the Apostle Paul encourages you and I to pray without ceasing. What is sometimes the hardest thing to do in any given day is to pray. When you close your eyes and try and isolate yourself from the world, getting into your own little prayer closet, or if if you actually go into a physical prayer closet, shut the door so that you're isolated and focused on God. How easy is it to pray? For five minutes, for 15 minutes, for a half an hour. How easy is it to pray for an hour a day? Well, now you're pressing it, Pastor, because there's so much going on. We've got so much going on in our lives. You know, whether it's sports or academics or it's this council or work or what have you. Uh, this group that we belong to, there's, there's so much stuff going on. We don't have the time and, and, and energy to pray more than an hour a day. The prayers of the righteous availeth much. Who can do more work in a day, you or God? I think you know the answer to that. Then why are we not going to him more often in prayer? Pray without ceasing. We are also called to preach the word because God's judgment is coming. It may not be the end of the world in your lifetime, but like I said before, each of us has an expiration date. It will be the end of your world if you stand before the living God with unclean lips because what comes out of those lips comes from a sinful heart. No, there is only one way you may enter into before the holiness of God, and that is through the sanctifying power of the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. I used to enjoy listening to J. Vernon McGee on his Through the Bible radio as he would work through uh, the Bible just year after year. But one thing I really enjoyed was some of the letters that were written to him of people who had listened some for a long time, and how God used this ministry just to transform people's lives, even over the radio. Uh, One program, on one program, Dr. McGee said, the word of God is the only thing that is effective. Jesus, and he's talking about the living word, Jesus Christ, even, even in Scripture. 
Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. And then he proceeded to read a letter from one of his listeners. The letter starts out, I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciated your ministry. The author of the, le- of the letter specified J. Vernon McGee's series through Leviticus, of all places. But he says, as a Christian radio announcer who incidentally has interviewed many spiritual giants, I fell into the trap of establishing a reputation for spirituality. Listeners were blessed by my ministry. I began to depend upon my ability to minister rather than look to Jesus. The effect was gradual but unceasingly negative. I could be tremendously spiritual on the air and very carnal in every other area of life. Since this seemed easy, I allowed myself to drift farther and farther from my Father in heaven. But the ease faded gradually, and pain began to replace it. Doubt and uncertainty regarding my true personality began to tear at me. Was I who people thought I was, or who I knew myself to be, and who my wife and children were beginning to see me as becoming? Was I a Christian or an imitation of one? Guilt began to plague me. I found it more and more difficult to get inspired for my program. I repeated old scripts and gave in more and more to sin. Finally, not by any obvious reasons, since I still had a rather spiritual reputation, I was terminated by new management. After 22 years of this kind of work, I was booted out without ceremony. He found employment after this at a secular job and continues what he's writing. Since I've left, I have really been going through a change. First of all, I struggle with the feeling that God was secretly behind my getting booted out of my ministry. If God is sanctifying him, I don't think that's very secret at all. I kept hearing the inner suggestion that God had given up on me and forget ever having a relationship with him. And as for my ministry, no more. But opposing this thought is the constant desire to be a channel for God to use. So it's been a real struggle. I've confessed sin so much that it makes me sick. I've put aside a lot of former practices and am working on the rest, but condemnation continues to attack me. He cites some scriptures regarding God's grace and then states, I am still tempted to think that I am uniquely bad and without hope. So the teaching on Leviticus blessed me. Your demonstration of the sacrificial system as being typical of God's dealing with our sins by putting, on, putting them on Jesus has been so good. One morning you, speaking of Dr. McGee, were emphasizing the fact that even the most useless sinner can still be used by God because he is forgiven and the blood has been shed for those sins past, present, and future. I tell you, I thought it began to rain at that point, but the windshield wipers didn't help because the moisture was in my eyes, not on the windshield. What a relief to hear the good report again, just when I needed it most. What a relief to hear the good report that God's wrath and judgment is poured out upon His Son in your place.
for all who place your faith in Jesus Christ. The judgment does not fall upon you. It falls upon Jesus Christ. Pray for those who don't know him. Proclaim Jesus' teaching to them that they may know not only Jesus' teaching, but also his great salvation that restores us to God through the sanctifying power of his precious redeeming blood. Amen.